Charmaine Hammond is an expert in conflict resolution. It helps business owners, human resources professionals, and leaders deal with conflict, difficult conversation, and other people issues in the workplace. Today on the True Success Podcast, she talks about building a respectful workplace, dealing with change and workplace conflict, resolving those conflicts that just won't go away, and helping leaders inspire the best performance from their team to improve results. She also shares her experiences from a near-death sailboat accident that taught her a lot about resilience, working in jails, which also helped her understand respect, compassion, acceptance, and communication. And then without further ado, her dog, Toby, the star of her books, who has taught her how to be a better human and also had an impact on her marriage. Let's get started. I'm Kirby Ingalls, and you're listening to the True Success Podcast. My goal is to help you find true success by helping you live a rich and satisfying life, a life full of happiness and meaning, and becoming a pillar of your community. It's my hope to inspire you to begin creating a new narrative, revolutionizing the way we live, and creating a ripple effect that resonates with future generations. Welcome back to the show, everybody. My name is Kirby Ingalls, and I am here with Charmaine Hammond. And Charmaine is an expert in conflict management, collaboration, creating community and resilience, not only in people and organizations, but also she's a professional speaker and a best-selling author and even a movie co-producer. Uh, Charmaine, would you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and uh, what we can expect from you? Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to today's conversation and, and sort of the journey is an interesting one. I'm sure like yours as well. Um, my journey started out working in the correctional system. So I was a jail guard uh, in adult uh, facilities and then found my passion and calling or purpose working with young offenders. And I was doing that for quite some time before I traveled across the country to follow the man I love <laughs> to a community where the jail was closed. So <laughs> there was no job for me there. So I changed focus a little bit and started working in the nonprofit sector. That's that was how cool. the journey began. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, you said you started in the correction system and you said you were working with youth at the time, right? Yes. Yeah. I was working with adults for um, a period of time and then had an opportunity to work in a secure custody facility for uh, young offenders, male, it was a co-ed facility and really, really uh, found my calling there. And it, it sort of blended my desire to be able to help people and make a difference. And in the adult prison, not everybody wants to <laughs> grow and change. So working with the young offenders really provided me that opportunity to do some things that I love. One of them, which is sort of mentoring and, and teaching and, and that job brought all that together. And when I left that career, I had worked my way up to being a leader and a director of an open custody male young offender mm. um, in Eastern Canada. And, you know, I got to say that job, that career actually planted the seed for what came next because what came next was me going back to school getting a master's in conflict analysis and management and then opening up a dispute resolution practice and then that led to sort of where I am today um, in this very yeah. um, twisty turny journey yeah no that's really cool uh you know because and, and I appreciate the fact that um you know you worked in the correction system and, you, you know, you work with adults as well as youth. Uh, obviously, youth has a very important aspect. And I know that, you know, about 80% of the men that are in correction facilities um, grew up without a father. And so mm -hmm. that, that, that whole area is extremely important to me. Um, 
so much so uh, that actually I've been kind of researching and studying how to create scholarships because I know education is a huge piece, right? And opportunities for oh. you know, youth that grew up without fathers, you know, and I live here in Leavenworth County, um, which there's five prisons in Leavenworth County in the United States. They call mm. it prison city for a reason. And mm. even the United States, Discipline, United States disciplinary barracks um, that I got the opportunity to work in as the inspector general um is also just down the road right here and that's where i kind of got my first exposure to the correction system and actually ran into some people that i knew in the army there uh but they weren't on the right side <laughs> uh which is kind of interesting i was like i remember right. you i saw yeah. what are you doing here serving time <laughs> wow so, uh that was a pretty pretty interesting um and uh it was just a really amazing experience. I've got to really work with some great people while I was there, some really mm -hmm. awesome chaplains that were really trying to make a huge difference. Um, and uh, just, uh, you know, and wondering, you know, and, and seeing some of the programs, you know, that people were going through the, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the term off the top of my head, um, um, where you leave in uh, second chance programs, I think, yeah. Where you learn yeah. and they get out and, and some of them do very, become very, very successful. Um, mm -hmm. just getting to meet other people um experts that in the psychology piece of it as well uh, yes and that was really fascinating to me to understand you know perpetrator behavior you know arsonist behavior you know just different things like yeah. that yeah it really helped kind of expand me you know that opportunity but uh you know what was it you know you guys said that kind of planted the seeds for other things later on but what really got you into that field oh interesting question what got me into that field i was a painfully shy child so one kind of shakes their head and say and you chose a job in corrections but i was painfully shy and i have to credit uh, my family and my grade nine teacher for helping me come out of my shell we had an incredible grade nine teacher i love talking about her ms Ursticatus, and um she created a classroom where everybody's voice mattered and really worked hard at establishing sort of a safe zone for all of us. And it was through her teaching that I started to build my confidence and come out of my shell a little bit. And I knew I wanted to be in a profession where I could help people and make a difference. I knew that. And I think because I was a teenager, I wanted something a little exciting <laughs> and somehow landed on the correctional, um, on the correctional system. And you know, went to uh, a college to learn correctional studies and did a, a placement in a male institution and a female institution. And, and then eventually what prompted me to move into working with young offenders was just wanting to be more active in the care and case planning that happened. And so when that job came open to be a um, um, correctional officer in this treatment facility for for young offenders I, I jumped at it and it was phenomenal learning and it's it's interesting because I look at all of that you know that was in the 80s that I did that so it's a while ago yeah. and I look at all of those experiences and yes I've grown a lot as a human you know as a business owner but I can I can actually look back through all those years and see that some of the lessons I learned um, in 1985 at the first job in a correctional system, how that has supported me today. And it's sort of taken me on this really interesting uh, journey to what I do now as a speaker, um, author and facilitator. Yeah, I think that's, that's fascinating. I think you bring up a great point. I mean, especially some of our listeners, I mean, even myself, you know, I had a, I don't want to call it midlife crisis because what is just a midlife career change is what it was. Right. And uh, I'd done, you know, army for 25 years and I, that's all I knew. And it was very scary making that transition for a lot of people. And I'm sure going mm -hmm. from, you know, a correctional spouse, specialist, you know, to becoming a speaker, author and all these other things was probably a very scary thing for you as well. And, uh, much like you said, you know, uh, and how you got in there, you know, you said you were a very shy person and how does a shy person go into corrections in order to become a professional speaker? And I think we've all kind of, well, I mean, at least myself, I've kind of had some of those similar experiences where, you know, I hated to deliver training. I did not yeah. like talking, you know, in open forums with people. I was very self-conscious about a lot of things. And eventually that led me in like Toastmasters and other things where I began to work on some of those skill sets and develop those even 
you know, you can teach an old dog new tricks. And so <laughs> I, and I was, and I, and I think what the big thing was, is um, I ran across a, an organization um, when I did some training there. And one of the things they said was your life in weeks. And there's this big calendar. And when wow. I started plotting it out, I was like, wow, I've got like more than half my life to live if I live to 90, you know, which if you eat well, don't smoke, don't drink, you know, yeah. uh, that that could possibly be the case. And uh, I was like, wow, I got, and you know, I've done all these things and I could do these all over again and more in the same amount of time. And I was yeah. like, okay, I've got time. And so I just want to encourage folks, you know, that uh, you've got time, you know, to make changes and new discoveries and explore new fields and go off and, you know, try new opportunities. So I think you make a really, really great point and a great example of that. Um, well, life is, a, you know, learning. I, I find that um, if I don't have new things to learn or, or be able to dabble my toe into something new, um, I, I get bored and I've learned, I've learned that about myself. So one of the ways that um, my life as an adult and, and in my career has helped me pursue the things that I'm passionate about is also looking at, you know, what are my strengths and what gives me joy? What doesn't feel like work? And when I left the correctional system, went back to school at that time in my life, I really loved the process of people resolving conflict because as you you know in jails it's just conflict always yeah, right, yeah. conflict with the inmates conflict with the staff conflict yeah. with everybody so there was so much conflict and I liked the process I liked the outcome of what happened when people went through a structured facilitated process and came up with their own solutions that they could live with and that's what then prompted me to go back to school and and um eventually become a mediator and open up my own mediation business and you know while I was mediating I was getting more and more requests from companies and businesses to come in and train their staff and that's how I fell upon speaking hmm. um, you know I never it, <laughs> never in a million years thought I would be doing that way back yeah. when although my family reminded me one day Charmaine I'm really surprised that you never saw yourself as a speaker because you went to school as a kid and then you came home and you played school <laughs> as a teacher and and so sometimes I think those those pathways are written for us at an early age. It might not be obvious to us. It wasn't in my case, but um, yeah, again, that that kind of web and flow of the journey. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing. I, I really do appreciate it. You know, you you talked a little bit about conflict already, and and I can attest to conflict um, mm. in the prison system is very challenging, um, especially with the personalities you're dealing with, um, and plus you're dealing with a lot of other um psychological and mental challenges as well uh and and the the intensity of the environment uh, yeah. and then you throw on workplace conflict you know with staff and other things it becomes a very interesting environment um, almost to the point where i know a lot of folks in there were very good at negotiation uh mm -hmm. because it, it was a part of that process and we all negotiate in the business world we all deal with conflict i think exactly. I would say, if I was to guess, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, conflict is probably probably about 90% of our waking hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting you raised that. I was just doing a training for a company recently. We were talking about the fact that one of the research reports that I'd read um, was talking about the fact that employees on average lose and just related to conflict about two hours a week related to being in conflict thinking about conflict so you think about that that's you know eight hours a month when you times that by the number of employees and that's not even like people yeah. being entrenched in a conflict that's just the nature of working on a team and being exposed to other people's issues and there's other research out there that says that managers Managers are spending uh, and leaders are spending upwards of 60% of their time dealing with negotiating, mentoring, coaching, facilitating the res resolution of conflict. And that doesn't that doesn't include the time that they go home and worry about it and think about it when they're with their family. So it is it, it's a it's a big part of our life at work. It's a big part of our life at home. And I think one of the blessings I have from working in the correctional system is that uh, my training and my experience led me to understand that 
um, conflict is neither good or bad. It just is. And when we look at conflict at really what it is, it's just disagreement. Mm -hmm. It's just different perspectives, but it's everything else that comes into play. Emotions, history, baggage, assumptions, all of that that makes conflict more difficult to deal with. And majority of us would rather avoid it then deal with it. So we deal with it much later. And I'll share this quote. I love this quote. I use it all the time. I've never met Judge Esty, but Judge Esty, whoever Judge Esty is, says conflict is not like wine. It doesn't get better with age. No, no it's great. <laughs> you that's gotta great. Do, isn't that a great? I wish I thought of that. Man, that's a great quote. But <laughs> yeah, perfect. you got to deal with it. Um, or it typically gets worse, harder to deal with. And, and, takes a huge toll on our relationships and our own emotional state and well-being. You've been listening to the True Success Podcast. To get your freebies, head on over to our website, www.kirbyingles.com, and subscribe to our mailing list now. Yeah, you know, um, that's interesting, you know, and I love the data. You said 60% of conflict consumes managers and leaders time. And that's not just the, 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 it's not the time that I think about it. And I would say, you know, I mean, I knew it was a lot, but then you put the number on it. And, uh, and, and in my personal experience, it seems like that's a lot of what, you know, we do as far as coaching goes and coaching employees yes. and doing role playing. Because every time we do that, we're always dealing with conflict, whether it's supervisor conflict, employee conflict, peer conflict. And it's just like a lot of the role playing I do is all based off of conflict or somebody's having to have a difficult conversation. And yeah, you're right. hundred percent. It is not good or bad. It's just conflict. I mean, it is. And, and I, I, there's there's this idea or this book um, and I just wanted to get your perspective on this um, that I read and forgive me I, I have to put in the show notes and, and find it but there's a book um, it talks about uh, people are not the problem mm -hmm. focus on the problem don't treat people as the problem and I think that's where a lot of us get it wrong is we begin to attack the person and not the behavior or the actual problem and that's where it goes south. And so I don't know Real if that fast. lends itself to why people just don't want to deal with conflict. Totally. But. Yeah, you know, when I was a mediator, and I've mediated thousands of people in hundreds and hundreds of conflicts in family scenarios, uh, separation and divorce scenarios, parenting and workplace. So all of those types mm -hmm. of scenarios I would be a mediator for. And what I discovered after doing that for about 10 years was that one of the biggest reasons why people avoid having those conflicts that they feel are difficult is they either don't want to make it worse, they don't want to hurt someone's feelings, they're afraid of what someone might think, and they're worried about sort of the aftermath of it all. And that's what I loved about being a mediator because I was able to provide and facilitate this respectful, safe environment. And when you're not in someone's conflict, you can actually see things differently. And I can tell you in a one hour mediation uh, appointment with clients, the number of times people would make assumptions about each other make an assumption about what somebody meant, what somebody felt. And when you can, there's two things that are so critical. When you can remove assumptions, you are <laughs> much closer to a successful outcome. And then when you can also change your mindset about conflict, part of what happens is in our heads, we, we create that scenario. Oh, this is going to be difficult or, oh, I'm dreading this. <laughs> it's going to be awful. And if that is our mindset, that shapes the words that come out of our mouth and you know this um, from the coaching you know the mindset shapes how we show up how we communicate how we are in relationships and the outcomes that we create so when i was a mediator one of my favorite exercises with people was to help them change how they thought about conflict because they're 50 percent of the way there so when i could reframe when they'd say i'm dreading this we'd reframe it to something like this is an opportunity for us to clear the air 
And when they said, you know, I'm, I'm worried that person's not going to listen to me, they're going to cut me off. A reframe from that might be, I'm looking forward to sharing my perspective with that individual. So I would just keep working with them until they could yeah. speak about it without that mindset that was going to set them up for failure. And the results, the, the tension reduction, it was just incredible to see how we think about something changes how we show up. Yeah, I'll, uh, you know, I'll, you know, I like that. Uh, I'll use myself as an example in my own relationship and my and be intimate about it and transparent. Uh, my wife will ask me questions a lot and ask me, you know, what I think about this and what I think about that. And it might be about some conflict that's ongoing. And it's not necessarily about me, but I'm providing my perspective. And then I begin to become part of the conflict because it's like, well, you never agree with me. And I'm like, no, I'm just providing perspective. I was like, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with what's going on. I'm just providing perspective here. And it always comes to like, somebody has to take sides. And I'm like, I'm not have to take anybody's side because I'm not yeah. part of this. I'm just an outside bystander looking in with a different set of eyes. And I think that some of the, some of the better questions I think that I've ever heard uh, other coaches and, and folks that I've even, you know, is, is uh, you know, if, if the opposite was true, you know, what would it look like? And, and so some of those things, and I try to keep that in mind when people are asking me those questions and I'm like, well, if the opposite was true, is this a true story or is the opposite true? You know, and, and I'm trying to just think of the different angles that could possibly be happening here. And it's like, I guess sometimes people feel like you're punching holes into their story and it's not, it's just like yeah. trying to provide perspective. Yeah. And so I know people feel like that. Like, why are you trying to punch holes in my truth? And I'm like, it's, it's, I'm not. <laughs> You've just reminded me of something um, around conflict. I remember working with clients years ago and one of the parties, it was a family mm -hmm. conflict. And one of them was so resistant to come up with, they would get so close to a solution. And then this individual would change her mind. And sort of almost go opposite of, of what she had agreed to and we were trying to figure out like how to how to work with this scenario and then I realized she was more comfortable with the dance of conflict than mm. she was with a new kind of relationship okay. and so that's one of the challenges in, in conflict even though it can feel awful mm -hmm. and it's stressful sometimes when we have conflicts in relationships, whether it be at work or at home or with our neighbors, um, when we know what to expect, sort of that dance of conflict scenario, we know what to expect and we think we can cope with that. And sometimes we fear what the relationship will look like without that conflict. You know, if that were gone, how does the relationship now manage? So conflict is, you know, in one, in one sense, we say it's just a conversation and it's yeah. just a different, but in the other case, it's so complex. There are so many things happening um, in, a, in a conflict. And, and now I don't mediate, but I speak and train on conflict. And, and one of the things that I really, really stress to people is about, and this is something you just said a minute ago, reminded me of it. It's that, Proving somebody wrong doesn't actually make you right. No, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It. All it is is proving someone's right. It's just your opinion and their opinion. But we we as humans often work so hard to try and prove the other person wrong instead of just simply understanding what it is they mean. And you raised a really important skill set a few minutes ago when you talked about asking questions and that one question you put out there was brilliant, by the way. Um, asking questions is so important in conflict. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have to, you know, um, say that I love what you just said there. And it reminds me of uh, kind of a philosophy that I took in my own marriage um, to even pull the scab off even more, uh, but uh, and expose the wound, but I didn't, I don't have to always be right. And that's what I had to learn. I can still get what I want, but I don't have to be right because and too many people are being are too focused on being right. And and if you can just get rid of that whole idea of you know I got to win, I got to be right, I got to winning is not being right. Winning is about getting what you want. And what I wanted was the same thing my wife wanted, and so our relationship began to 
as soon as I started stop trying to fight the battle and win the debate and just what was it I was trying to get after and, and figure that out and get what I want, I didn't have to be right anymore. I could take the loss. I still got what I wanted. So yeah. <laughs> you you just covered the most important part of conflict resolution and that if you picture an iceberg in your head you know we always talk about conflict at that tip of the iceberg level that positional level who's right who's wrong this is what i want this is what i want and we never go into that deeper conversation which is what you just talked about as being so important because you were able to identify the common interests you and your wife actually wanted the same thing you were talking about it differently perhaps but you wanted the same thing. And that's where conflict can be so effectively resolved is when we sort of go under this iceberg, under the surface of the water, under the iceberg, and look at what are the driving motivators? What are the, what are the underlying interests? And where are their shared interests? And you just identified, you know, we wanted the same thing. And often when I was a mediator, I can think back, whether it was a divorce mediation, a parenting mediation, and they were negotiating curfew or a workplace conflict, there were always some um, common interests under that iceberg. And they were often respect, the need to be heard, the need for validation, underlying priorities and preferences and values. And when you can get to that in the conversation, the solutions just kind of start to emerge themselves. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's 100% true. And I love the use of the iceberg as an illustration. I think icebergs make some of the best life illustrations. There are. <laughs> they're so interchangeable. <laughs> yeah, they are. They, they, they're, yeah. they're awesome. Uh, so, you know, I, I was reading that you have a five-step model that you use for conflict resolution. Can you share that with us? Sure. So when we, when we talk about conflict and I was trained in a, in a four-step model of conflict resolution, which we call an interest-based model. And it's really a model that works because we look for what you just defined a moment ago, those common shared interests. So the first step is we really have to prepare. You've got to prepare for that. And what do I mean by preparing? It means getting rid of the assumptions that you might not even know you had, you know, practicing in advance what you want to say to the person. Don't rehearse what they're going to say back to you because they never do, <laughs> but prepare your part. And if I can offer you the best way to do that, it's to take a blank piece of paper mm -hmm. and a pen or a Sharpie, write down the key points that you want to share with that person. Mm -hmm. And then you go into a room with a mirror and you practice it like at least 15 times. Mm -hmm. And what this does is it works out some of the drama. It locks in the important messages in your brain. So if in the real meeting you get stuck, you can remember it. And it actually helps you feel more confident and prepared. So step number one is to prepare for the conflict, the set or the conversation, sorry. The second stage of this model, when you come together with that person, whether it's in person or on Zoom or the phone, whenever you're ready to have this conversation, you've prepared for it. The second part is to figure out what exactly you're talking about. There's probably times you can think about it in your own life. I know it's true for me where I thought we were talking about this and partway through the conversation, it's like, oh, we're talking about this. <laughs> we're having, you know, this parallel conversation, not on the same topic. So we want to set the agenda or what is it that we're here to talk about? The third part of the model is, and this is where the bulk of the work is talking about it. And this is where we're undercover, we're under, we're, uncovering those underlying interests. We're asking lots of open-ended questions. I'm listening to your perspective. You're listening to my perspective. The next step in the model is starting to brainstorm or identify what could be possible based on what your needs are and what my needs are or your wife's needs, whoever you're in conversation with. So you look at the options and you choose one and agree on it. And then step number five is to follow up because typically we are so relieved to get out of that conversation yeah. <laughs> and we walk away and we feel great, but then there's no follow-up. It doesn't feel like the gap is closed. And in workplaces, I used to hear people say things like, mm, are we okay? <laughs> are we good? <laughs> and so you've got to close that loop. And following up a couple of weeks after the conversation, a week after the conversation is a way of making sure that the solution is working and the relationship is intact.
Yeah, I think that's really, really important. Um, I had a boss when I was a, a young HR guy that always talked to me about following up. And he related it to golf a little bit. Uh, and I thought that was an interesting. Um, but he said, you know, life, life in, in, in the work in our in HR business, right? Because we deal with a lot, you know, we did deal with a lot of conflict. Uh, always, always some kind of workplace conflict, whether it be administrative or personnel or whatnot. And it was always about following through, you know, mm. you know, following through with with what you said you were going to do or with whatever needed to happen and then you know following up with the individual to make sure that yes. they were satisfied with the result that they got and if they weren't then you had an opportunity to make it right in that moment rather than them having to come back to you later yes. and say hey uh or or you know just start talking bad about the organization yeah. you know and then you start to hurt your personal branding and all these other things but uh yeah. But it was, I was like, that was really important. And so as I began to engage customers uh, and other folks that would come into my office uh, and especially leaders, I would always go back and even if I didn't go back to the individual, but I went back to the leader that brought the individual to me and be like, hey, how's things going with Dave? Is, is everything going okay? Did he get that money that he was missing, you know, on his paycheck or, you know, and it was just like, and that was kind of like the cherry on top. And after that, it was just like, you became, I wouldn't say, you know, it wasn't the intent to become the hero, but you just began to develop a personality, uh, uh, characteristics that people just loved. And they began to come to you because they felt like you could be that person that could, you know, assist them, help them, take care of them. And I, I thought that was really, really important yeah. advice. And it was something that I learned early on. And I was very, very grateful that he kind of imparted that wisdom and it kind of stuck with me. And I, I had to see the results right away, right? Because he could have said something. And if it would have went, didn't go well the first couple, you know, times I tried it, uh, I might not have kept doing it, but I did get instant results. And so I just kept yeah. doing it more and more and more. Um, and I, I, I really have to say that following up is probably one of the most important things anybody could do. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's all. Your golf analogy. So we move from icebergs yeah, to golf. golf. <laughs> and so I love it because in golf, I don't play golf. So, yeah. but a friend of mine told me, Charmaine, it's the do over, the mulligan. Yeah. And oh, yeah. right. And so yeah. I love what you said about correcting it in the moment. Yeah. The, so many times, I can't tell you how many cases I was brought in as a mediator because people didn't do that. So mm. they said something in a meeting. It was like their inside voice came out. And, you know, they're saying, Ooh, I wonder if anyone noticed. And then they went home and they stressed about it. And then they asked all kinds of people on their team. Do you think anyone noticed? <laughs> and now that, right. And so all this energy, and now it's included the whole team where the other option could have been to just presence it and say, I, I just want, I just want to correct myself here. What came out of my mouth was this, what I meant to say yeah. was this, I'm really sorry. Let me do it again. Yeah, and just fix it. Day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And leaders, you talked about leaders, man, when leaders can model that, wow, talk about being able to transform the team mm -hmm. in terms of how people communicate together. Well, it just shows you care. I mean, yes. you, you took the minute to follow up and didn't say, you know, you shoot an email and, you know, be done. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. You know, it's not a problem anymore. It still is a problem yeah. until you know that it's been resolved. Yes. So, <laughs> no, yes. I think it's a powerful conversation and thank you for sharing it with me. Um, you know, uh, we could probably go on for days. Uh, <laughs> it really, we really could. I want to talk to you a little bit about, because um, there's a lot that we could talk about public speaking. We could talk about resilience, many other things. But I think we'll talk a little bit about that as we begin to talk about, um, you, you, you're you an author of about, what, five or six books? You've yeah. been in like maybe, what, seven, eight, nine publications already? Yeah. Um, and so you're, 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 I mean, you, you, you are a credentialed author for sure. Uh, and you put a lot of great content out there, but I actually read the book about Toby, which is your dog. Could you share the story about Toby oh, a, a little bit? Sure. And I'm going to ask you some questions as well, but, uh, sure. there's a story behind Toby. So there is. So to Toby was a dog that we had almost 11 years ago now. And uh, just an incredible Chesapeake Bay Retriever. Uh, came to us as an older dog. We adopted him. He was a rescue and he came to us overweight, under 
exercised and with mental health issues. He, had, he was on drugs when he went into foster care, anti-anxiety pills. And when he went into foster care, they did a great job of getting him off the meds um, but what and, and losing lots of weight before we brought him home. But what happened was that he no longer had coping devices because he was always medicated. Um, he was on enough human, he was on Prozac actually. Um, and it was enough to medicate a 180 pound man. Wow. So you can imagine he was pretty lethargic. And, mm -hmm. and anyhow, when we brought him home, we're in love with this dog. And, you know, he's the best dog ever. And then one day we went out and we come home and literally we cannot get in the house. The house is destroyed. Like I'm talking furniture move, toilet tank lids broken, all the plants out of the clothes all over, things eaten, things chewed, blood on the walls because he knocked over the knife block and cut his foot, stepped on the coffee craft that he broke. And so we had to get help for him. And because uh, I was in love with this dog and my husband was ready to do this, me or the dog thing almost. <laughs> and uh, we got help from a dog behaviorist named Maggie. And when she came into our life, she said, Toby is a dog who needs a job. He needs a purpose. And I was actually going through the same thing in my life, feeling like, what now? I, I need a different purpose. So he, we became a dog therapy team. Uh, he volunteered every Wednesday in a, hosp a psychiatric hospital for four years. Um, after all of the massive destruction he did in our house over you know, the first little while, the day that he put on that red vest and went to the hospital, the destruction pretty much stopped. Wow. And so the story is really about how this dog taught me how to be a better person. And while he worked on his issues, I worked on some of the things that I was wrestling with in my life. Yeah, no, I thank you for sharing some of those uh, key important lessons. And that was some of the things I thought was interesting in the book was he was a dog that didn't have a purpose. And I think that's just, I think that it is a really good life lesson for a lot of us, you know, yeah. um, there's a lot of us that engage in destructive behaviors. And I'm just probably familiar to you in the correction system where people engage in destructive behavior, um, because they just don't have a purpose, they don't have a role to play, you know, and and, and they have to find that. And once you find that, it's just the, the, the individual just blossoms. I, I truly believe everybody has value in them uh, and they have value to provide the world. They just haven't figured out what that is yet, you know? And yes, yeah. I, I thought that was a beautiful story. Um, Thank you. Yeah, how did, uh, you know, you said it helped you individually, but you also, in the book, you said it also helped, you know, helped in your marriage as well. And so I thought that was interesting. <laughs> this dog who is the source of conflict in your lives ended up helping yeah. both of you out as well. Yes. You know, um, Toby taught me a lot. And so he taught me about the importance of play. He taught me about not being a perfectionist. You can't live with a dog who destroys your house all, all the time and, and yet expect perfection. So I had to relax on that. And I think it was getting in the way of our marriage a little bit. So when I was able to relax on, yeah. on being a perfectionist, our marriage started to improve. We had a good marriage. It started to get great again. But the key thing was Chris and I had to work as a team. Yeah. We had to work as a team together to help Toby. And it gave us, you talked earlier about having that common focus. Mm -hmm. In this case, our common focus was this dog. And so mm -hmm. we discovered that Chris and I both communicate very differently. He is a to the point, don't give me the backstory, just mm -hmm. don't need all that, just tell me this. And I'm like, but you gotta know the backstory. <laughs> so yeah. we communicate differently. <laughs> yeah. And working with this behaviorist with Toby, we, we discovered that we needed to be able to communicate effectively together for Toby to excel at his role. And so it helped us communicate. Um, it it kind of gave us something to do together because we also ramped up the training that we did with Toby. So it was something to do together that was outside of work and, and um, outside of kind of our family, um, you know, chores and things like that, that we do around our house. So it really did, um, you know, Toby had a played a very big role um, in our life and we have a another dog in our life now who's completely different he doesn't wreck houses he just wants to be loved and wants you to play with him 
but he is my, he is another teacher. And in 2018, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And this dog, when I came home from the hospital after surgeries, all of a sudden turned into my care, like my therapy dog. I didn't ask for that. He wasn't trained for this, but he did not leave my side until all my treatments and chemos and all that were done. And now we're working with him, you know, it's a couple of years later and we're still trying to get him out of that role. You don't need to, yeah. to be my, my therapy dog anymore. Well, so awesome. animals are incredible. They really, and you know that. Yeah. You know, for that sure. you have a dog. Yeah. I well, you have two dogs and two cats. Um, ah. You get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, and my wife uh, is interesting. She broke her foot climbing twelve feet up in the tree to get the cat out. Oh, uh, wow. the tree for three days, and it was like thirty-two degrees outside. Oh the... my gosh! Yeah, and um, uh, we went through a lot. Uh, I had to go through a lot. That cat taught us a lot <laughs> because I, that, I mean that was a part of you know our you know strengthening our marriage too because we have four or five well we have five children but four with her and uh, that are living in the house right now and uh, <clears throat> she had a broken foot. Um, she had three plates and three yeah. pins put in her foot, uh, fall 12 feet. And Ooh. she still has somewhat of a limp and she's still yeah. going through some process, but she's able to kind of do everything on her own. That was back in October that happened. Um, and so wow. I had to go through November, December, through all the holidays and the winter months. Luckily it was the winter months because we weren't as mobile. Uh, and uh, to kind of work and take care of kids and you know do all the stuff that she was because she had to sit on the couch for literally three months mm -hmm. um couch to bed couch to bed and that was it uh, and uh that you know that cat you know if it wouldn't have got out and climbed up that tree and stuck up there and wasn't going to come down um you know we wouldn't have been able to strengthen our marriage in that way because mm -hmm. there was a lot of things that we had to change and adjust and I had to like, okay, I have to stop doing this. I have to stop doing that because now I have to do this and that and, and reprioritize things. We refocused, we kind of, so, I mean, all of our pets have brought something, you know, special to our lives and you mm -hmm. know, helped us in our relationships as well. So I appreciate you sharing your story as well. Um, you know, and, and part of that is, is in, in this uh, story or saga with, uh, with Toby, uh, you talk about letting go. Um, and I always remember the Frozen song, Let It Go, Let It Go. My daughter sings it all the time. Yeah. She's three. She's in love. But uh, we're talking about, you know, because this is, you know, we're talking about conflict resolution. And sometimes you got to let things yeah. go. So you wanted to kind of tell us about that lesson. Hey, everyone. This week, I'd like to share with you a review from Matt Zinman. If there's any one thing about Kirby, it's that he does his homework about guests and develops pointed questions that, in all candor, have never been explored in my prior interviews. I've no doubt that his audience agrees with the value this provides. Thank you, Matt, for that wonderful review. Hey, everyone. Did you know that the number of True Success Podcast fans has doubled in this year alone? We must be doing something right. Let us know what keeps you coming back for more. This enables us to continue providing you the best experience possible, not only for you, but to help others understand how the True Success Podcast is helping make your life easier. Sure, letting go. Oh my gosh, it's probably one of the hardest lessons for all of us. I learned in a really scary way how to let go. The short version, um, it's probably everyone's favorite chapter in the book. It's the one I hear about the most, but the short version is um, Chris and I weren't married at the time and we had a we were out sailing at the lake where we lived and we flipped the boat. It was a catamaran. So Chris used to go out and flip that boat for fun. It was my first time flipping the boat and I freaked out. You can imagine. <laughs> Anyways, as I'm trying to get back on the boat, I can't get on the boat. There's no ladder. He comes around to push me up. And right at that very moment, um, after we had flipped the boat and got it right side up and I can't get on it, 
uh, right at that very moment that he was able to try and help me get up on the boat, a, a big gust of wind came and caught the sail and took me dragging behind the boat. And so we were separated in this lake and it kept pulling me further and further out and probably about a mile or a little bit more. Um, I don't know if I let go or mm -hmm. if the boat and I got separated. I don't know if I let go or if we just got separated. But so here's Chris and I, you know, over a mile apart in a very big lake, seven miles to swim and uh, terrifying experience, as you can imagine. Yeah. And swimming in a life jacket is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, the short story of this is that I had a trapeze harness on on the boat, which is sort of where you wear this sort of diaper contraption and you lean off the, the boat to keep it balanced. And as I was swimming, it, it kept pulling me under. And as I'm trying to swim to shore, but an hour and a half later, because um, it's slow moving when you swim in a life jacket, I heard this splashing and, and there it was Chris. He had swam all that way so wow. that we didn't have to be alone. I get emotional when I talk about this, even though it's 20 plus years ago. Yeah. But um, he swam so we would be together through this ordeal. And um, we swam for four hours. Um, and then he said, Charmaine, you got to let that thing go. You got to take off that trapeze harness. It's pulling you under. It, you've mm. got to let it go. And I was so ticked off. Like <laughs> I spent $375 for this thing. You think weird things when you're swimming for yeah, your right, life, right. but I, I didn't want to let it go. And then I did take it off and then I wanted to drag it behind me. I yeah. didn't want to let it go. And, and then we had to just let it go. It was becoming a safety thing. And, and Chris actually by now was losing consciousness and um, that there is an upside to the story, as you know, from reading the book, but essentially um, in a moment of him being lucid, he said, you know, Shar, when we, you got to leave me here. And when we get back to shore, we got a wedding to plan. And apparently I turned into like this Olympic swimmer. <laughs> I went and got help. True to his word, we were married a year later um, wow. and have been married ever since. Very happily, he would add. He always very happily. And um, the big lesson in that, though, um, mm -hmm. was sometimes you just got to let go of stuff. And something that feels like it's keeping you safe in that moment may actually be your biggest safety factor or your biggest downfall. And, and that lesson in the lake, I'll tell you, even though that was almost 25 years ago, um that day in the lake has become an anchor in a good way for me in many ways around resilience and mm -hmm. letting go so sometimes we have to let go of the mindsets we create or the assumptions we create about people or the expectations we have on ourselves yeah, yeah, yeah that is that is truly an amazing story and i love reading and i love reading a lot of the things in the book i think there's about like 30 two chapters i think in the book if i remember yeah. there's there's a yeah. lot i mean there's They're very so short though at least i know yeah i mean it's <laughs> yeah. short but it, it yeah. there's a lot but, of yeah. life experiences and stories in there and i there just is, really yeah. i loved it i love reading i actually enjoy reading those Thank more than you. i do those big thick you know long drawn out books on self-help and because they're just so powerful because they're their experiences right they're actual stories about people who are overcoming adversity and challenges and it's just and you become part of that story right you know you're you're like you're there and i really did really love it and appreciate it um you know one of the Thank things you. i you know i did when i was reading in the back it talked about optimism um one of the questions that i saw back there because it you know you also written some questions um uh, for mm -hmm. you know book clubs and study groups and things yeah. like that uh and in the back there was one of the questions about um being told you're too much of an optimist sometimes mm -hmm. and uh when i actually uh was in the military i ended up going through master residency course and it kind of changed my life to a certain degree at least helped me chart a different you know path forward and in there they teach about learned optimism and a lot of times I'm, I'm always told like, you're too much of an optimist. And so can you talk a little bit about that being, yeah. you know, the good side of that and then there's the bad side of that, so. Yeah, yeah, it, it's in such an interesting conversation. So I am one of these people that tends to see the glass, you know, full or almost full versus empty. And that ju that's just, you know, how I choose to see life. And sometimes it's, and, and I'm, I'm a firm believer of that, I, I want to put energy into 
good outcomes instead of putting energy into fear and what if and, and bad outcomes. However, there, there is a bit of a, you know, I've learned through the correctional work, through the mediation, and now through being a speaker and, and trainer and facilitator, is that it, optimism sometimes has to be balanced with a really strong perspective of reality. So we can be optimistic and hopeful, but we also have to be in the know about what the situation is that we're really dealing with. And then how do we look at that situation, um, you know, in a way that is hopeful? Uh, and I, when I think about conflict, um, that's a great example. You know, I don't actually like conflict. <laughs> no, I teach it, uh, teach yeah. the skills. I mean, I'm fine with other people's conflict, but oh, if it's my own, I get uncomfortable with that too. I think we all do as humans. But I always want to believe that, you know, we're going to have this best outcome. And I remember years and years ago having a disagreement, a pretty strong disagreement with a coworker. And I kept believing that, you know, we're going to work this through and the relationship is going to be intact and we'll rebuild our trust. And that didn't happen. And I remember how heavy that feeling of deflation was. And I think part of the reason why it hit me so heavy like that was that I was just putting so much hope and good thoughts about autism, I, uh, autism, optimism, <laughs> that I wasn't actually looking at the real situation. There was a bit of a gap in that. And so I've learned that sometimes we have to balance both of those, but I still choose to be optimistic. I think it's a healthier place for my brain to be. Yeah. When you, when you do the, uh, if anybody ever does the, uh, the uh, character strength survey, uh, optimism always is in my top five signature character strengths mm -hmm. and there's a side of that that I learned um Martin Seligman uh talks about in some of his books you know there's these blind character strengths we have and some of them can be so strong they can have a negative effect in our lives and and they call it a, a blind strength because uh, we really don't see that it can have that negative effect and we see it as a positive thing but it, too much of a good thing can end up becoming a bad thing in some ways. And uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, and I, I think that that really does lend itself to, you know, what you said about balances, you just got to find that balance. It comes natural and, and you want to, and you want to put energy into a lot of things and a lot of light. Um, but there's that balance, right? Cause you can, you know, do it too much. And I've noticed that with a lot of folks, our strengths are so good you know, that sometimes they have a negative, you know, uh, connotation or, or result sometimes if we don't learn how to balance them out a little bit. Um, yes. You've done a lot of amazing things. Um, you've probably impacted a lot of people, not only in the correctional system, but, you know, as a trainer, uh, mediator, uh, you know, speaker, you've probably inspired and touched a lot of people. I'm sure your books have, you know, um, have helped a lot of people out. And you've got some interesting, you know, books because you've written uh, I believe it looks like a kid series on about Toby. And so you, yeah. so you're also inspiring young, young or youth as well. Uh, how, you know, I get, you've probably already hit true success, but how are you defining true success moving forward? Mm. Ooh, that's such a juicy question. True success. I think success, and this is my perspective mm -hmm. for me is when I can wake up in the morning go to bed at night and feel mm -hmm. like I'm in, in integrity with my goals and who I want to be and how I want to show up as, an, as a person. I think many years ago, I measured success by outcomes, mm -hmm. how much I accomplished, what I was able to achieve. And I think now it's more about being in alignment with my values and what's most important to me. And Success is all also for me about, I've, I've been so blessed to have amazing mentors in my life, my whole life, amazing mentors. And, and I think part of how we can share that mentoring forward is to pay it forward and, and help other people learn and help other people grow. And, and, and so when I think about success, it's a, it comes from a place of um, sharing with others so we can help shortcut their learning. But it's really for me about being in alignment with my values and my goals, the things that are most important to me. And um, I guess 
I, I always have these lofty visions of, you know, what I want to, to do in the world or how I want to contribute and seeing some of those come to fruition that no longer have ownership over me. So sort of where projects become a movement that feels like success because it becomes other people's projects. Beautiful answer. I, I thank you for that. Um, especially love the idea of making sure your life's aligned with your values and your goals and, you know, your purpose and, and your vision and stuff like that. So uh, that's something I really do encourage a lot of people figure those things out first and then figure out what the outcomes are that you want later. Uh, because a lot of us do focus on the opposite. We focus on the outcomes versus, you know, the other thing. And then, you know, we're halfway through our lives and we're trying to like, okay, figure that out now. <laughs> well, um, <Yep. laughs> so you talked about vision, you know, and, and, and the things that you wanted to work on. So where would we find you? And, you know, if we were to, you know, look you up in 10 or 20 years, you know, what, what do you think we'll see? Oh, wow. In 10 or 20 years. Okay. I think in 10 or, 10 or 20 years, I see myself um, I like writing. So I see myself continuing to write. I love uh, being involved with projects that mm -hmm. make a difference, projects that matter. So I see myself, you know, taking on some really cool volunteer jobs that uh, volunteer work, philanthropy work that allows me to blend in all those um, skills mm -hmm. that I like to use, what gives me joy. And I think the number one would be in 10 or 20 years, just really enjoying the relationships I have with family, friends, colleagues, neighbors, just enjoying connection and making a lot of time for that. Awesome. No, I, I think that's wonderful. I, uh, you know, it sounds like, uh, you know, you know what your calling is and, uh, you know, that, that writing process, you know, uh, I've always told people, I never intend to retire. I will always be doing something and, you know, you're talking, about, <laughs> Me too. you know, you're always talking, you're talking about that philanthropy work and doing something, you know, and being a part of that, that world. And that's what I kind of see. Not only that, like you, uh, I see that for myself as well. Uh, I, I don't think retirement's a bad word. <laughs> we might lose our purpose if we go sip martinis on a beach somewhere. And, you know, I don't know if that would be enjoyable for the rest of my life. I think work kind of helps define us, you know, yeah. and, and kind of gives us purpose as well. But, uh, you know, if you were to cast a stone in the water, and that would create a ripple effect, what would that be? Mm. Oh, these are such juicy questions. Cast a stone in the water and create a ripple effect. The very first image and mm -hmm. picture that came into my mind when you asked that question is mm -hmm. I cast a stone and there's a ripple effect of kindness or compassion mm -hmm. that would be, that would happen. Okay. And what would that mm -hmm. stone be? Mm. That's going to cause that. that yeah, that stone would, what would that stone be? I think it, the stone would be how I show up in the world so that I show up in the world as a person who is kind and compassionate and takes time to greet people. And I've seen so many times in my life that like, you know, where I'm having a bad day, for example, or a bad moment, and somebody just walks past you, I'm out walking Toby, and they look you right in the eye, and they say, good morning. And it just, it changes perspective. And so I always want to have that kind of impact where just being human, I think it would be coming from how I show up. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I really do. Um, that you would be that, that stone, um, mm -hmm. and how that impact I think, you know, most people I've talked to on this show and asked them the same question, most of them, we, we all talk about an action that we would do uh, mm -hmm. versus, you know, the person that we become can create mm -hmm. that ripple effect. So yeah. I, I think that's powerful. Um, so I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to turn it back over to you and allow you to, you know, share with the, the listeners anything that you would like to at this point. And how do we get a hold of you? 
Oh, thank you. Well, really appreciate this rich conversation, by the way. This is awesome. Um, would love to stay in touch with people. So the best way to get a hold of me is Charmaine at raiseadream.com. That's my email or just raiseadream.com is the website. I'm on social media and uh, would love to stay in touch and keep the dialogue going. All right, folks, I appreciate you listening. Charmaine, thank you very much for being here today and sharing all your wisdom and all the value with us. We're going to take all those links. We're going to put them in the show notes so uh, folks okay. can get there and access them easier and how to get a hold of Charmaine on social media as well. Uh, she posts a lot of great stuff. Thank so you. I would suggest that you follow her. Uh, thank you again, Charmaine, and we will see you soon. Thank you. Now it's up to you to put all this information into action. Please check out the links in the show notes, download a copy of the transcript, and smash that subscribe button. Leave a comment or review on your favorite podcast platform. Now go out and carry this story forward. My name is Kirby Ingalls. I appreciate you listening to this episode. Honor your service to others and love the impact that you are creating. You've been listening to the True Success Podcast. I'll see you next time.